This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me in studio today, I have Tom Clonan of Many Hats. Senator Tom Clonan. Uh, what else? Doctor. Doctor Tom Clonan. Captain. Captain Tom Clonan. And I think it's the captain hat and all of the experience that you have with your other hats on that will help you to help us understand what is happening in Israel and in Palestine. Um, first of all, tell us your background and why you are fit to speak on the subject. <laughs> okay, so um, in a previous life, um, I was in the Irish Defence Forces as an army officer. Uh, I served for 11 years and during that time I served in the Middle East in Lebanon, um, just on the border with northern Israel. And I was there during a very violent deployment when Hezbollah, which is uh, one of the most fanatical Islamic resistance group in the Middle East, uh, began to fire missiles and rockets indiscriminately into northern Israel. And these are war crimes. Um, and Israel, when they began to take civilian casualties in uh, kibbutz and villages and towns in northern Israel, they launched a massive retaliatory strike against the people of Lebanon um, called Operation Grapes of Wrath. Okay. And it may, so some of this dynamic might sound familiar. Um, in terms of what's happening today. So they saturated the area that we were in, uh, all the little villages and uh, and towns and farms with like literally tens of thousands of airstrikes, helicopter gunship attacks, um, artillery, um, tank, direct fire weapon systems and essentially killed hundreds and hundreds of innocent men, women and children. When you describe it like that, the sort of... The Lebanese people, they did this and then Israel retaliated like this. Is it a, it's not tit for tat though, is it? Is the, is the, is the response proportionate? Are they, are they, like if that's a war crime, is what is done in retaliation a war crime as well? Or was it? Well, so the, 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 the term proportionate has a kind of a subjective quality to it. Do, mm -hmm. do I think it was proportionate? But it's also a term that's uh, set out in law. So under the Geneva Conventions, the use of force um, is in and amongst the civilian population and civilian objects is supposed to be proportionate and okay. is supposed to be reasonable. And the Geneva Convention states quite explicitly that if you cannot isolate military targets without uh, killing civilians and destroying civilian objects mm -hmm. um, like houses, 
apartment blocks, okay. then the attack must be called off. And if it isn't called off, then it is described as, as disproportionate. It is described as willful killing. Okay. And it is also described in law as wanton destruction. Okay, so the objective there is for the Israelis to isolate Hezbollah, find out where their targets are, and they are, according to the Geneva Convention, allowed to attack those places. But if they can't say specifically that is a Hezbollah HQ or something, but we know there's one kind of in the area, we'll just bomb the whole thing. They're not allowed to do that. They must have justification and cause for attack. And in the case of Hezbollah, they did have justification. Unfortunately, however, Operation Grapes of Wrath was a collective punishment against all of the people of South Lebanon. And it culminated in a massacre of refugees Uh, on one of our UN positions in a little village called Kwana, where 117 men, women and children were killed in one incident. And then that led to a ceasefire negotiated between Hezbollah and the Israelis, uh, negotiated by the Clinton administration. So fast forward to today, we have a very similar dynamic, uh, only much worse, in that on the 7th of October, Hamas carried out, like, bestial attacks on Israel. Uh, Genocidal, I would say, in nature, just the indiscriminate killing of hundreds, over a thousand men, women and children, the abduction of, it is believed, as many as 240 hostages. And, you know, these are all individually and severally egregious war crimes. And And that was, so that was perpetrated against Israel. And now Israel is responding. But can we get to, so Israel is one of the most advanced countries in terms of military technology, military intelligence. They have Mossad, they, you know, they support other countries in their attempts for intelligence. They have this dome that sort of kind of like the Simpson in, in, in the Simpsons movie, like this dome that covers Israel that prevents uh, drone attacks or stri- airstrikes because it can, you know, kind of intervene before they land. How did Israel not know that this was coming? Is it because Hamas have been planning this and it was a really, really well organised and orchestrated attack for a long time? Or or is it an inside job? It's, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you what the facts are. Okay. So the number of Hamas terrorists who crossed into Israel proper through the border fence um, was a very, very large number. Okay. We're talking hundreds. So to get that number of people uh, ready... Just walking through a fence. Uh, equipped. Some of them were on motorcycles, some of them were in vehicles, some of them were on, some of them were on foot. Um, but that speaks of a level of, of really high level of organisation. If that was a conventional military force that number of troops would would kind of represent a, a battalion in the front line, which in turn would require a brigade to support it. So that was a brigade size operation. To organise and execute a brigade size operation requires so much signals, intelligence, you know, mobile phone calls, emails, texts, WhatsApps, Uh, Even the transmission of orders, if it was done on paper, there's a huge amount of data and intelligence to be that would be generated in the advance of such an attack. In addition to that, Israel has, you know, observation towers. They have uh, human intelligence. They have lots of spies 
and informers and they have infiltrated many of the the, the resistance and terrorist networks within the Gaza Strip. Uh, they also have what's called national technical means and Gaza is a very, very small area. It's 365 square kilometres. It's, you know, like 40 by 7. 40, it's, it's a very, very small area. So with using satellite technology, overflights, aircraft reconnaissance, I don't know how they didn't see this. The only theory I can come up with is that perhaps Hamas had a very sophisticated deception plan. And if they had, then that sets this operation apart from others, which suggests to me that they may have had assistance from a third party, perhaps Iran, mm-hmm. um, you know, something very, very disciplined. Uh, they may have had the assistance of a state actor to to achieve that level of deception. Um, and the Hamas knew that when they mounted this attack, that they only had a very narrow window of opportunity to in, to kill as many people as possible. And that's why they began to take hostages so quickly, bringing them back through the holes in the fence, because they knew that the Israelis would respond. It, The whole thing is just, it was unspeakable. But really, people like Benjamin Netanyahu and, and others, you know, they have very, very serious questions to answer about how that breach in security for Israelis was was allowed to happen or how, how, how it could have been achieved by, by Hamas. And that's going to have a deep and long-lasting impact on psychological impact on, on Israelis and, and how safe they feel within their own territory and within their own country. Can we talk about, just for people listening who might not know the history, have there been tensions between, like, what is Hamas? What is Palestine and what are the tensions? Like why do, like you said there, the Israeli, they have observation towers. They're always watching for these attacks. What is the tension between Israel and Palestine? So so basically Gaza is a place where the Gaza Strip is an enclave within Israel, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, uh, with 2.2 million Palestinians crammed in there. It's surrounded on all sides by the Israelis at sea on, on their northern eastern and southern borders with with Egypt. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. It's been blockaded for a very long time by Israel. And so you have these 2.2 million Palestinians trapped in here. It's effectively a huge open prison or a concentration camp. And why is that allowed to happen? The international community has tolerated this, repeatedly protests the UN the United Nations, the United Nations General Assembly have passed resolution after resolution condemning this treatment of the Palestinians, which is in breach of their fundamental human rights. There have been a number of uprisings. I mean, this is a really short potted history because this goes back to the 1920s. But Hamas came into being in the, in the 1980s mm-hmm. and it is an extreme form of resistance against not just Israel, but against all Westerners or non-Muslims or Kufars as they would refer to us. Mm-hmm. And that's a very pejorative term. Um, and they regard the world of non-Muslims as Dar al-Kufar, which is the world of non-Muslims. And essentially their ideology is to destroy everything in that world. That is not Muslim. Yeah, to, to be basically create a caliphate like Islamic State okay. and impose Sharia law on everybody. Um, universal Sharia law in a universal caliphate. That's their, it's, it's, it's an extreme form of Salafist or Wahhabi Sunni Islam. 
Um, it's it's similar to Islamic State. It's similar to Al Qaeda. It's a very they, extreme form. And I suppose the people would argue that because the Palestinians were treated so badly for such a long time, that it allowed for a movement like this to to come into being. Do and the Palestinians support Hamas? Like, do they are they happy with those guys being the leaders? So in two thousand and seven, Hamas gained control of the Gaza Strip. Okay, by uh, force or by election. Uh, <laughs> By a combination thereof, okay. uh, they do use terror tactics to I- intimidate people into supporting them. They have a, uh, they're, they're known to have a tactic of, of throwing political opponents from the roofs of, of buildings, uh, engaging in, 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 you know, extrajudicial killings and so on. Uh, so they are de facto now in control of the Gaza Strip. They launched this attack. In, it is my belief that th- this was a strategy to provoke Israel into doing precisely what it's doing now, okay. which is which is to invade the Gaza Strip to, to try and destroy Hamas. So how how does that benefit Hamas if they knew that the the like that because this will escalate the war into a regional conflict and it'll open up a second front, most likely in northern Israel on the border with Lebanon. It'll most likely involve Hezbollah uh, attacking. Israel and the Israeli military being divided into two fronts, one front into Gaza and then another front up into southern Lebanon. And, and if that ha- and, and that would be an escalation to a regional conflict because Hezbollah is backed by Iran. So it would bring Israel into indirect confrontation with Iran. And so when we talk about Gaza, it's a part of Palestine. There are also parts like the West Bank. We mm-hmm. hear about that sometimes. Are Hamas... Are they active there or are they just active in this? No, it's a, their, their centre of gravity is in the Gaza Strip. There are other political um, groups in, in the West Bank. But I have to say, like the 2.2 million Palestinians that are there, there are approximately 40,000, they believe, Hamas fighters. That's it. They're the target, not the 2.2 million civilians that are currently uh, experiencing the the full retaliation of Israel against what Hamas did. So, under international law, under the laws of armed conflict, and under the Geneva Conventions, you know you mentioned it yourself. So you you try and isolate a Hezbollah target, and then you can legitimately attack that. You try to isolate a Hamas target in Gaza, and then you can legitimately attack it. And Israel has the right to defend itself, but it does not have the right to break. Uh, to commit war crimes, essentially. So, but isn't their argument, <clears throat> Palestine, or Hamas did not have the right to indiscriminately absolutely. kill all these people at the music And that is to be absolutely condemned. And Hamas, are, you know, what they did was unspeakable. But if they want to defend themselves against Hamas, the Geneva Conventions are very explicit. Where you have such a concentration of civilians, you must create, the, the person who's doing the attacking, i.e. Israel, has a responsibility under international law to create what's called an eva- a safe evacuation corridor out of the target area. Okay, so Allow civilians to leave. And they have to make special provision for the elderly, for pregnant women, for women who have just had babies, for infants, for children, for the sick, for disabled, for the wounded. They must actually make, use the resources of their own state to create that safe evacuation corridor and then they must create a safe zone where those people can be given adequate food, water, shelter and medical attention while the war is waged. 
the Israelis have but not. Sure, that never happens. Like that, it just seems like such a. Sorry now, to, but like it just seems like such a male way of thinking about things. It's like, okay, we're going to organise this war and here are the rules. But like we see with Ukraine, Russia are not giving them safe places to live. They're living here and across Europe. They're all displaced. Like having rules of war seems really silly because obviously well, it's fueled y- by yeah, anger I mean, and it's I not mean, logic. Look, I experienced this at first hand back in the 90s as a young, a younger person. And we saw the impact of high explosives on whole families, children, grandparents. You know, they typically in Lebanon, you'd have three or four generations of one household living in the same house. And it's the same in Gaza. And the effects of high explosives are horrific. Uh, burns, shrapnel injuries, limb separation, decapitation, horrific soft tissue injury, injuries and the killing of whole families. Uh, like, And that's war. In, in popular culture, in our news culture, um, war is often described in very masculine, as you call it, terms. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about weapon systems and tanks and artillery. But the truth of it, of it is that any war, whether it be Ukraine or in Gaza or what happened to those Israelis at the at the uh, Supernova concert, is, is, it's, about, it's just about killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the principal victims and targets of, of conventional warfare now in the 21st century are civilians, innocent men, women and children. So the the, the, the the rules-based order that we hope for in the 21st century, you know, the laws of armed conflict, the Geneva Conventions, these were set out to try and minimise the, 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 the harm to the civilian population. It's aspirational. But but there doesn't I, seem to be any ramifications. Like, like yeah, Well, I, I, there are going to be ramifications because I actually think you know, I'm describing those soft tissue injuries. That, so just to be really clear, on the 7th of October, Hamas attacked Israel. For the last three weeks, we've had airstrikes in Gaza. And in the last 48 hours, the ground campaign has started. So they've actually entered this yeah. space. And not only a small number of people, not everybody has been able to escape Gaza City. There's approximately a quarter of a million people trapped there mm-hmm. as the Israelis go in now, house to house, building to building. And the weapon systems that they're using, Merkava tanks, which has a main armament of 120 millimetres. These weapons, even the rifles that the soldiers carry with the high velocity rounds, they pass through walls, cavity blocks, concrete, steel, brick. There's nowhere to hide. You cannot escape it. But are they and indiscriminately shooting through walls to kill civilians? Well, when you open fire, the weapon has a range of 800 metres. Where, where, you know, and some of the weapons they have, like the, the 12.7 millimetre uh, machine guns mounted on armoured personnel carriers and on helicopters, they fire at a rate of 550 rounds per minute. And if we take the revenge and the anger out of it, just for a second, what? So we know... Go back to Ukraine. We know that Vladimir Putin wants to invade Ukraine to get Ukraine back into Russia. And like his ideal is like just like mm. reassemble the USSR back to the good old days. What do Israel want and what do Hamas want? And what, so what, like what's the end game? OK, so what Hamas wants is the destruction of Israel. They want Israel to be drawn into a, a regional conflict involving many of its neighbours. Iran tried to provoke some of the Gulf states uh, to ultimately destroy Israel. That's that's what they're, okay. and then after that they'll concentrate on world domination through sh- the internationalization of Sharia law. This is the Islamic State thinking. Okay, the Israelis' aim is to go into Gaza City and to destroy and kill 
all of Hamas and its its 40,000 fighters. Okay. And Mark Regev, the advisor to, the senior advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, said in an interview with CNN that what they want to do is exactly what was done to Islamic State in Raqqa, in Syria, and Mosul in Iraq in 2016 and 2017. And in both of those cases, the coalition-backed forces, US coalition-backed forces, went into the cities of Mosul and Raqqa and fought street by street, house by house, until they had killed and dispersed all of the Islamic State fighters and had destroyed the caliphate. In both of those cases, uh, in Raqqa, it took nine months. And in Mosul, it took 10 months. And that was to kill approximately 9,000 fighters in each city. And in those cities, they didn't have the underground networks of tunnels that Hamas have in Gaza. Yeah, talk to us about those. So, so what's going to happen now is the Israelis are going to try and repeat what coalition forces did in Syria and Iraq against Islamic State. They're going to try and do that in Gaza City, but they're up against 40,000 people who are waiting for them. 40,000 fighters who are waiting, who've had the experience of fighting them in 2008, 2009 and 2014. And they will inflict huge level of casualties on the Israelis. But the Israelis are going to, in order to achieve this, as was the case in Mosul and Raqqa, they're going to completely destroy Gaza City. And this is where it's getting, I, I believe that it's now the digital age the apocalyptic images of this destruction and civilian deaths are going to go into the digital realm. They're going to be uploaded as they are now on a minute by minute basis. And it's going to bring Israel into disrepute internationally. It's going to enrage the Arab street. I think I I would predict that Iran will instruct Hezbollah to go to war against Israel. And if that happens and there are a number of Irish commentators who who have a different view, but after the invasion of Iraq by the United States and the disastrous consequences, Tehran now enjoys an arc of influence from Tehran through Baghdad in Iraq to Damascus in Syria and right into Lebanon and Beirut with Sheikh Nasrallah, who is the leader of um, Hezbollah. So ter- Iran now has a political arc of influence, but also a land corridor all the way from Iran right down to the Israeli border, which means they can resupply and reinforce Hezbollah ad infinitum in, in, in this coming conflict. <clears throat> and if that happens, I think the Israeli military may be in difficulty. And that's why the Americans have sent two aircraft carriers, uh, carrier groups uh, to the eastern Mediterranean to send a signal to Iran that they will get militarily involved if the destruction of Israel looks in any way uh, possible or if, if, if that's threatened. So this thing is an absolute humanitarian catastrophe in, in Gaza. I believe that Israel has a right to defend itself. But what they're doing now is disproportionate. And I don't mean that in the subjective sense. I mean it in the sense of the laws as set out in in the laws of armed conflict in the Geneva Conventions. And the consequences for you and I, Stephanie, are, I mean, apart from, you know, the ups, I find it very triggering to see this. I've children myself, I saw children being killed. To see it happening again in such large numbers, like 200, 300 children being killed every day. This is going to have a lifelong impact 
for for Israelis, for Palestinians, and it's going to reinvigorate and reanimate fundamentalism and terrorism throughout the Western world. So if you recall before COVID, those awful summers we had in Europe, 2016, 2015, 2014, where you had ter- wolf attacks, we had so. terrorist attacks all over Europe and people being killed at Christmas markets and then that kind of indiscriminate slaughter like the Bataclan theatre attack, we, we will see that again. Um, and this time, I think it'll be it'll actually be worse because Islamic State did not enjoy the official overt support of a state, whereas in in this if in this coming conflict, if there isn't a ceasefire, if it isn't de-escalated, then you're going to have major state actors involved. You'll have the Iranians, you'll have the Russians, you'll have who are the Russians backing? So the Russians are backing Iran. Okay. Because Iran is their principal ally in the war against Ukraine. Okay. And Iran was also their principal ally in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq and the war in Syria where Russia intervened with the <coughs> assistance and the support of Iran to re, uh, I suppose, to, to protect President Bashar al-Assad and his regime to prevent that from collapsing. I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Our sponsor is Rockwell Financial and they have a special offer for basically listeners. Rockwell Financial protect but also enhance the wealth of SME owners. If you own a small or medium enterprise or you are a sole trader in Ireland, Rockwell Wealth Management will protect and enhance your wealth and they have a free consultation for basically listeners. So call them up, tell them you're a basically listener and they will give you a one-to-one consultation for free. Your heart works 24-7. So if you're worried about chest pain, palpitations or breathlessness, it's really reassuring to know that expert heart care works 24-7 too. The Matter Private Network in Dublin is the only private hospital in Ireland offering urgent cardiac care all day, every day. That's weekends, bank holidays, even through the night. It's a unique service for patients who are worried about their heart and want to be seen quickly by heart experts at one of Ireland's leading hospitals for cardiology care. If you're worried about your heart, remember this number, 1800 247 999. You'll speak directly to a cardiac specialist nurse at Matter Private and they'll talk to you about your symptoms. And if you need to come to hospital, you'll get a thorough cardiac assessment as soon as you arrive. If you need treatment or a procedure, the cardiology team will work out the most appropriate plan for you. Even if you need treatment the same day, this will be arranged immediately. For urgent cardiac care at Matter Private Network Dublin, call 1800 247 999 or visit matterprivate.ie for more information. Drag Race UK is back. And if you are watching and you want to hear some outrageous opinions, some glittering guests and some piping hot tea, tune in to Sissy That Pod with new episodes every Friday right after the episode airs. Brought to you by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Hate me because I listen to Sissy That Pod. So we saw, like in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, we saw a swell of support for Israel and for the Jewish community. And that seems to be... Now, it's 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 interesting because with Ukraine and with, with Russia, it seemed very black and white, you know? It seemed very much like we're pro-Ukraine, we're not, you know, our government was saying we are not neutral on this issue. Like we knew Vladimir Putin was the bad guy and we knew, you know, Mm. in this 
case, I see an awful lot of very pro-Palestine, pro-Gaza we support the occupied state of Palestine in Ireland. We we like there's a mm. lot of pro Palestine, and then my social media, my the influencers I follow now they're you know home and beauty lifestyle influencers, but they are posting, you know we need to stop this anti semitism, support Israel. I see videos being put up of Israeli soldiers talking about what they're doing, and people supporting them underneath in the comments. It seems so uh, conflicted like across the globe that it's hard to know how this goes. You know, like the US have unwavering support for Israel. The UK, we see in the in, in the you know in in the voting in the UN, some people abstaining, other people very much supporting Palestine, asking for a ceasefire, saying like we this needs to stop. But it doesn't seem as clear cut as as Ukraine Russia. Yeah, and look I, I, I said that you know, when the images of what happen, what's happening in Gaza are, are uploaded mm-hmm. and mobilised in the digital space. And we're all getting these messages. Uh, you know, every feed that I go on to, I'll see scenes from the uh, Supernova concert. I'll see scenes from kibbutz where people were slaughtered and children were shot in their beds. I'm sure you've seen these images. You're going to see the most horrific scenes from Gaza, which is the inevitable and predictable and foreseeable consequence of what Israel is doing. And that's going to drive terrorism, but it's also going to drive anti-Semitism because this will be seized on by people who are anti-Semitic and they'll they'll mobilise all of this rhetoric to, to you know, apart, from, you know, not criticising Israeli foreign policy or the actions of Benjamin Netanyahu or the Israeli Defence Forces, but to mobilise anti-Semitic hatred. Which is already there. We, we, yeah. we, and that that's latent and that's something that we... You know, before I came in here, I was, you know, I was watching the news and uh, the the Star of David is now being spray painted onto houses and homes all over and buildings and commercial premises all over Paris and other European cities. So you have this rise in... What, to identify that they're owned by Yeah, that their owners are Jewish or that there's a Jewish family living there. I mean, this is... And this is, again, what Hamas and groups like Islamic State, this is what they want. They want to sow that kind of uh, dissension. But the wider scenario, the the wider conflict in geopolitical terms, you see Britain and the United States aligning themselves now with Israel and possibly some of the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, against Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, and in the background, Russia. This suits Russia. Absolutely, this is the best possible, this is a gift to Vladimir Putin because his his three-day war, which is now almost two years old in Ukraine, um, the support for Ukraine from the European Union, from, from NATO, from the United States, the, the United States was under pressure um, to, to continue that support and to keep the momentum and that absolute dynamic going. But now with two uh, aircraft carrier battle groups, diverted to the Eastern Mediterranean and the possibility of of direct military confrontation with Iran, this is going to really dilute their capacity to support Ukraine in the way that we have Mm -hmm. heretofore. So this is all part of a wider set piece of a multipolar world. This is the reality of the 21st century. Um, The the global order is, is being, I suppose, realigned to some extent. The hegemony of the United States and NATO and and the Western powers is being challenged by 
What are China but, and the but, East doing? Like well, a, I mean, I don't mean to sound disrespectful or I don't mean to sound facile, but China will be taking out the popcorn now and watching exactly what the West does with this absolute cataclysm in the Middle East. They'll watch the West expend itself on this. And really, what, what I, I've been saying this over and over again, like peace is possible. You know, back in the 90s when I was in the Middle East, after the massacre at Kwana, it brought the world to a kind of a halt. And it brought the world almost to its senses. So a, a ceasefire was agreed between Hezbollah and the Israelis. And it worked. Uh, what we need is a ceasefire. We need, we need <coughs> to allow the people of Gaza City and, and, the, and the Gaza Strip to be properly uh, cared for in, in the aftermath of this awful onslaught in the last few weeks. Like 8,500 people killed, 3,500 of them children. There has to be a ceasefire on both sides. And ultimately what we need is leadership. But this goes to what you were saying about, you know, this is a real masculine. Like, Benjamin Netanyahu, to me, in the speeches he's made, but he's it's, literally it's said, toxic masculinity. Yeah. It's like Vladimir Putin. It's it's like Donald Trump. You know, we need visionary But hasn't he literally leadership. said he will not, like, asking, he said asking for a ceasefire is asking Israel to accept and support Hamas and, and the terrorists. Like, isn't that what he's saying? He's like... Well, that's what he's saying. And that's, that's to create a, a false narrative, bi- binary right? narrative. It's an a priori. It's an ideological position. It's the same position that Hamas would take. So the only way out of this mess is through proper ethical visionary leadership. But I don't see it in Netanyahu and it's certainly not there in Hamas. So I say, you know, God help the ordinary people of of Gaza and ultimately... I feel that this may damage Israel itself in a way that that they haven't really thought this through. Because if they get it's involved, it's bad PR. Like it's, it's not uh, worse than that. I think it actually could possibly sow the seeds of the destruction of Israel as a secure and stable state. And can we talk about our Irish troops in Lebanon? So recently in the last, like in, in recent years, Lebanon has seemed to be a mission that people go on. It's not, it's not that high risk, would I be right in saying that? It hasn't been, it's... Well, we had uh, one peacekeeper killed last year and another seriously injured. Oh, yes, but, yeah. Um, what was his name? I know his name. Uh, Sean Rooney. Sean, but you, yeah. you... Like Lebanon is just, it's always unpredictable. Okay. Um, Are our Irish troops still out there? Yes. And so is we, it still a peacekeeping so mission? We, we have troops in South Lebanon in a mission called UNIFIL, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And that is to kind of monitor the exchanges between Hezbollah and the Israelis along the border. What kind of exchanges? Like uh, artillery exchanges, uh, firefights. Attacks, so they still are attacking each other. Yeah, they are. Yeah, there's always there's always been a sort of a low, um, what's called a low intensity conflict, which breaks out into more intense conflict every now and again. So the UN are there to try and keep a lid on it. Okay. So we have we have a couple of hundred troops there in Unifil, and we have a new battalion rotating out in November this month. Uh, we have troops in Syria on the Golan Heights on a mission called UNDOF, the United Nations. Disengagement Observation Force, which is to keep an eye on relations between the Israelis and the Syrians. And then we have the UN Truth Supervision Organization, or UNSO, and we have a number of observers based, and they 
rotate between Israel, Syria and Lebanon. So we, we have quite a lot of troops out there. My concern would be that if this turns into an all-out conflict, if Hezbollah do go to war with Israel and the Israelis retaliate, it, it will completely change the nature of the... Missions, I don't I don't like, know if the missions and the UN Security Council resolutions that underpin them will, will still be relevant. Mm-hmm. If President Assad in Syria, who's had t- almost 10 years of, of combat experience now, if he decides this is a good time to try and take the Golan Heights back, then the UNDOF mission would be, could be overtaken by events. So I think, well, I know that the United Nations will be looking at these and preparing contingency plans. Um, but I think our own government should be across this. The, the Department of Foreign Affairs has issued a warning to all Irish citizens to leave Lebanon. Yeah, and I had a few messages from people saying, what about, yeah. well, like, my son is out there. Yeah, so the they're anticipating uh, or, you know, preparing contingency planning for the eventuality of a, of a much wider regional conflict. So there has to be military planning in place to determine what do we do um, if we're overtaken by events, if there's a massive escalation in hostilities, how do we get our people out? And I, I think I actually know, <laughs> I know the answer to that question, but it, it's not something we could we could discuss here, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, 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 that is potentially a challenge. But the the defence forces have a lot of experience of dealing with this. Like, um, this has happened before, uh, but potentially not to the extent that it might on this occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we have uh, managed. So we just have to, it. It's one of those things. It's it goes with the territory. You know, if you go into a hostile environment as a peacekeeper or a peace enforcer, these are the risks. You can't eliminate the risk. You try to control for risk. You take force protection measures. Um, but ultimately, somebody's going to have to make a decision on this. Okay, but at the moment, like our troops are still out there, and they're still they're still out there. They're still carrying like out. Like the are the mission. ones coming out in November? Are they going to be like briefed slightly differently now that things have changed? Is their mission different, or is it still well, same jobs? The, the 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 risk factors, I suppose, are accelerating. <laughs> the mission will be broadly the same notwithstanding the escalation in, of, of exchanges of fire between Hezbollah and the Israelis in, in northern Israel. Uh, and the, but at the moment, is it mainly, it's mainly isolated to Gaza, Gaza City? Yeah, the absolute yeah. centre of gravity of, of the conflict at the moment is in, is in Gaza. And when but, you talk about those underground tunnels, what, what's the setup there? So over the years, because of the, the surveillance methods we referred to earlier, you know, the overflights, the satellite technology, the signals intelligence. Um, Hamas have been forced to kind of essentially literally go underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the blockade of Gaza, also there are thousands and thousands of kilometres of uh, underground subterranean tunnels for smuggling to get black market goods in and out of uh, Gaza, contraband, and also for groups like Hamas to organise, they've got underground hospitals, um, storage facilities, weapons dumps, command and control centres. They they have an absolute labyrinth of these tunnels. And who funds that? Like, <laughs> well, that's a really good question. It's in funded in part by some sympathisers. Iran absolutely is supporting mm-hmm. Hamas, and Iran has considerable assets. Uh, there would be other actors in, amongst the Gulf states who would who would donate money. 
And the Israelis have alleged that the United Nations has contributed to, you know, by giving aid and support to the Palestinian people has either directly or indirectly contributed to these kind of, you know, networks of tunnels and, and the people who who are, are organised and involved in those activities. Um, it's, it's, it's so dysfunctional and the suffering of the Palestinian people is, is inestimable. But by doing what they did on the 7th of October, Hamas did not bring the Palestinian people forward one inch. And they may, in fact, by provoking Israel in this way, they, they, they may drag us into a much wider conflict um, that could be, that will have very, very serious con- consequences. You know, we've now got two wars on, on Europe's borders, one in Central Europe and one in our Mediterranean uh, zone of influence. And how and come, <clears throat> this might seem like a, a silly question, but the way we had the you <clears throat> support for Ukrainian people, telling them, you know, come here, you can live in my house, we'll put you up in a tent, like we'll do whatever we can, even though we don't, you know, we have a housing crisis, we'll do what we can. Where are the people of Palestine going? Like... I don't know. There's a suggestion um, that the Israeli strategy will be when they've destroyed Gaza City that they will annex it and occupy the that ground themselves and bring in settlers. There's a so suggest- just Israeli civilians will just live there? There's, yeah, there's a suggestion that Israel ultimately, their grand design is to push uh, the Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip completely through the southern city of Khan Yunus, through the Rafah uh, border crossing into the Sinai and that there would be refugees and displaced persons to Sinai indefinitely. And Where Egypt, is that? Where is it's that? It's in, e- in Egypt? Egypt, northern Egypt. And this is something that the Egyptians are, are very concerned about. Uh, but this, it is alleged, is the grand design and on social media and in some uh, mainstream news uh, platforms in the last 48 hours, they've been publishing what they say are documents that show this is a, a strategy that the Israelis have. Um, and So at the moment, are they going, I, I heard on the news about a, a small, corridor into a Egypt. A very, very small number of injured people and people with dual passports. Are in Egypt now. Yeah. But again, this is part of the, what will the ramifications be? This has the potential to create a, a, another refugee crisis. Like, in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and with the impact of climate change, you know, we have an unprecedented mass movement of refugees mm-hmm. all across the world, you know, trying to escape from the, the impact of climate change and conflict. This has has the potential to accelerate that. Um, we're trying to cope at the moment with the influx of Ukrainian refugees. Um, I think Europe, I, I don't know if they will welcome uh, refugees from North Africa and the Middle East in the same way, mm-hmm. quite simply because they're not white, quite simply because they're Muslims. Like this is going to, in addition to the anti-Semitism, it's going to, it's going to promote, you know, if, if we have a, a resurgence, and I think we will, of terrorism, there'll be Islamophobia uh, and more push to the right among certain European governments. Like, this this whole situation, it's a tragedy principally for the people of Israel and, and Palestine. But, you know, we're all going to feel the impact of this. Um, and 
for me, the the worst part of it all is that this is this Prevent. is preventable. This is solvable. And it goes back to what you were saying, though. And I actually believed it to be the case that this is it's this is the result of hundreds of years of kind of like patriarchal ways of thinking, toxic masculinity. Like if you look at the speeches that Benjamin Netanyahu Mm -hmm. is making, if you look at the speeches that the head of Hamas is making, they, they all use the same body language, the same rhetoric. It's all. It's old just power and revenge, revenge and violence begets violence. It's it, there has to be a better way uh, for us to survive. Do you think that we need another? So, if you said, and I'll finish on this, Lebanon, the the Hezbollah Israel conflict was kind of the ceasefire was introduced by the Clinton administration. Bill Clinton also had a, a hand in us and our. Good Friday Agreement and the the ceasefire in the north. Does is it going to take a foreign leader who we know is not going to be from the US because they've stated their case, a foreign leader to intervene and be like, lads, we just need to settle down here? Or how how can a ceasefire happen? My my concern here is that what will bring about a ceasefire is that something awful is going to happen mm-hmm. in that will bring the world to to a halt. And it it may be just might to force say force people to come to their senses, however temporarily. But you know, it was a quote that was attributed to Barack Obama: an intractable sort of internal crisis with people who hate each other. You know, a hundred years of that is better than two weeks of of war. Mm-hmm. Like we just have to stop the fighting, stop the killing, and then try and move forward out of this. And, you know, groups like Hamas, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, their principal targets and victims are Muslims. And Muslims are absolutely horrified by, you know, the actions of groups like this. Because Islam is such a peaceful religion. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw, you know, some of the families, you know, decrying um, the the actions of Hamas. Some of the uh, families of the Israeli hostages criticizing Netanyahu and criticizing Israel's really awful foreign policy position on on the Palestinians. So there is hope. It's just a matter of, you know, trying to promote people through through politics and peaceful means to to chart our way out of this. And should pe- like if people feel power like they want to do something, like is protesting, lobbying your local TD, donating to UNICEF, like what can regular people do. The only thing I can do is t- turn off that like does not allow social media to show me those images because I don't yeah. think that... Well, well, I think, you know, back in the 80s when the Provisional IRA had a very aggressive uh, bombing and assassination campaign in, in throughout the UK, you know, when you had an Irish accent on the tube or anywhere in the UK, people would look at you and they would be frightened or hostile okay. <clears throat> on the basis that you, you're Irish, you must be a terrorist. I think what we can do in our everyday interactions is is to try and, you know, not to uh, do anything that that amplifies Islamophobia or amplifies anti-Semitism. Okay. Um, we can be critical of Israel, critical, but I I don't. That would be a fear, just the, the whipping up of hatred, and social media plays a big role in that. Mm-hmm the circulation of ideas and, you know, hate speech and so on. So um, just not 
not to get caught up in that. And but I think we have to be positive and we, like for all of the the harm that's in play. Like you look at groups like the Red Crescent, the Red Cross, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, the United Nations Works Relief Agency, all the all the people who are trying to help. Mm-hmm. Like there are lots of good, there are more far more good people than there are, are the minority that cause all of this suffering. Uh, so just so listeners know, we're recording this and it is relevant as of the 1st of November. No doubt things will change before this goes out, which will be the next Tuesday when you'll be listening to this. Um, and Tom, depending on how it all goes, we may get you back in to explain any further yeah, thank you. progression. But thank you so much for that uh, brief history of terror and uh, insight into what's happening and that is another episode of Basically our music is by Only Ruin our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara we're produced by Hilary Barry and we're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network see you next week This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.